Would you remain standing if you're able for a moment longer for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be reading Isaiah 53. We're actually going to start at verse 13 of Isaiah 52 and read through the end of Isaiah 53. This is the word of our Lord, Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told of them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, your word is powerful and reaches into the deepest parts of our hearts. We pray that as your word is proclaimed tonight, that our hearts will be laid open and bare before you with whom we have to do. We pray that you point us to Christ, the one who died that came to life and reigns at your right hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.
the idea of a person sacrificing himself or sacrificing herself for another has always found a place of glory in the history of humanity. That is the case because all of humanity understands that it needs someone to stand on its place before God. You watch movies, you read about history of people saying, no, I will go in their place. In the last 10, 15 years, the big movie hit, the big book hit was Hunger Games. And you remember in Hunger Games, um, Everdeen, whatever her first name was, stepped up and took the place of her sister and went to the games as a tribute in the place of her sister. And everybody praised her because there is a certain nobility in standing in the place of someone else. And that is because all humanity knows that he cannot stand before God on their own. We all need someone to stand before God in our place. Yet all of humanity suppresses that knowledge in unrighteousness because they do not want to bow their knees to the one who would become their Lord if they acknowledge that He's the one that stands before God on their behalf. But that is exactly what humanity needs. One who would stand in their place before God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the one who stands in the place of the sinner is Jesus Christ. And that's all that Good Friday is about. The death of the innocent for the guilty. The death of the God-man for people like you and I who cannot stand before God on our own. If you have any familiarity with the Bible, with the New Testament, you read Isaiah 53 and you are sure that this is about Christ, just because it feels just like what you read in the New Testament concerning Christ. But we can go beyond feeling and beyond familiarity with this passage because the Bible itself tells us that Isaiah 53 is about our Lord Jesus Christ. When Philip is sent by the Holy Spirit to minister to this Ethiopian eunuch, an official of the court of Candace of Ethiopia, who it just happens to be reading Isaiah 53, he says, I can't understand this in Acts chapter 8. Would you tell me what this means? No, I, I've never met somebody who did that to me. I walk in Starbucks, there's this guy reading a scroll and says, is Isaiah 53, can you just tell me all about it? That doesn't seem to, but that's what happened with Philip. He came to the eunuch and he's starting from this very passage. He preaches Christ to the eunuch. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 quotes this passage and says, This is Christ who died for the sins of his people. Portions of this passage are quoted six times in the New Testament. And every one of those times, we're told, this is Jesus. This is God the Son. This is the God-man who died for the sins of his people. And even in history, to the 11th century AD, the 11th century of our era, both Jews and Christians believed that this passage was about the Messiah. Now, the Jews didn't acknowledge that Christ was the Messiah, but they believed that this was 
the Messiah to the point that it was so clear that it was about Jesus that starting in the 11th century on, Jews changed their interpretation so that they wouldn't agree with the Christians on this passage. Some have called Isaiah 53 the bleeding heart of the Old Testament. In summarizing this chapter, Willem van Gimmeren uh, Old Testament commentator and scholar says this. He says, The kingdom of Jesus Christ is not of this world. The kings and nations were astonished at his kingship. In verses 1 and 2. He was exalted only after he had been rejected by this world. In verses 3 and 4. And had suffered for the sake of others. Verses 4 through 6. His vicarious suffering was in total obedience to the Father. In verse 7. More than that, he died because the Father willed it. In verse 10. Through his obedience to the Father, even to death, the servant obtained power, glory, and dominion. All the blessings of the covenant promises are securing him in verses 10 through 12. Through him, the new community, the many, will be justified and glorified in verse 11. So you can see this in summary form. Isaiah 53 includes the history of the redemption of God's people. You could use Isaiah 53 as the structure in which you outline the entirety of the plan of redemption of God from eternity past in the covenant He made with Himself through the consummation of time where Christ comes back and makes all things new. In order to understand fully the impact of what God, the Holy Spirit, is saying in chapter 53, we need to go back to verse 13 of chapter 52, 52, and that's why we started reading there. Isaiah 52, verse 13, introduces to us the servant of the Lord. There are several servant passages in the book of Isaiah. This one is definitely about the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah tells us that God's servant will deal, deal prudently in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Our Savior, the servant of the Lord, will do prudently. He's going to work wisely. He is going to be successful in what he does. And this means that what the Father appointed for him to do, he will do. He will accomplish the mission that the Father has given to him. And his mission was to save his people, his church. And because of what the servant will do, he will be exalted. You see that in verse 13. His name will be elevated above every name. Everything will be brought under submission to him. And because of what the servant will do, the eyes of the nations will be opened to see him. You see that in verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. And this verse shoots us all the way to Revelation chapter 5, in which we're going to consider Sunday, where the nations there are gathering at the feet of Jesus, people from every tribe, people from every tongue, people from every ethnic group, worshiping the land, a multitude that cannot be numbered, these are the nations that are mentioned here in the last verse of Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 53, and that's something we don't get very often to understand very often, is Isaiah 53 is the, the nations speaking. They are looking back and they're saying, 
That is our Savior. Notice all the verses, all the verbs are in the past tense. From the point of the speaker, these things happened. So the speakers are future to Isaiah 53, looking back and acknowledging that Jesus is that Savior that gathered the, that lamb slain before the foundation of the world that's now sitting on the throne of heaven, gathering the nations to himself. And one day it's going to have a multitude that cannot be numbered before him. And how was he going to accomplish that? By dying. Dying 2,000 years ago on that cross. Before we go any further, I want you to see that this chapter speaks of Christ's suffering. And that suffering as a substitute for those that have faith in him. That's what this chapter is about. He did not need to suffer. He himself was perfect. He suffered for his people. And if you belong to him, he suffered so that you do not have to suffer in hell for your sins. This is not about temporal suffering. This is not about healing. This is not about prosperity in this life. It is about sin. Sin you committed against the holy God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth. This is about your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is not your boss. Your greatest problem is not your spouse. Your greatest problem is not your children. Your greatest problem is that you're a sinner. And God is holy. And you have to give an account before Him. <coughs> Apart from Christ, we are sinners. Kevin DeYoung in the post on World Magazine, which I print in the back of your uh, order of service, says this, not the, the, the sinners that Christ died for, these are not theoretical sinners, not nobody's perfect sinners, real sinners, inside and out, dead in our sins and trespasses, desperately sick, enslaved by passions and pleasures, being hated and hating one another, that kind of sinner. And that is who you are. That's who I am apart from Christ. The young continues, Sinners in need of a real Savior, not a myth or a metaphor, not a better version of ourselves, not a hero of our own making. We need a man like us, and we need a God utterly unlike us. We need a genuinely historical person who transcends history, an eternal son born in the fullness of time, a dying sacrifice who does not stay dead. That is Jesus. That's our Lord. He, in Isaiah 53, received what we deserved. In verse 4, it says that He bore, bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. In verse 5, it says that He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised, crushed for our iniquities. And then when you hear this word bruised or crushed, your, your mind should straight, go straight back to Genesis 3, verse 15 where the Messiah, the seed of the woman, is going to crush serpent, the serpent's head and free us from the dominion of sin. In verse 5, he was punished, chastised with the punishment that was due us. In verse 5, again, our, our, all our iniquities were laid upon him. In verse 6, he was stricken for the transgression of God's people. In verse 11, he bore our iniquities. In verse 12, he bore the sins of many. And... 
If you are his, you are, so, you are so united to him that what he did on the cross was you die on the cross with him. A very wise pastor, French pastor from the 16th century by the name of John Calvin says, When we behold the disfigurement of the Son of God, when we find ourselves appalled by his marred appearance, we need to reckon afresh that it is upon ourselves we gaze. We gaze. For he stood in our place. That man beaten to a pulp, nailed to the cross. When you look at him, you must see you. You must see your sins crucified with him. He received what we deserved so that we receive what we don't deserve. By his, his stripes were healed in verse 5. He was beat up so that we could be make, made spiritually whole. Because of his righteousness, all those who come to him in faith will be justified, will be declared not guilty in verse 11. Because he satisfied the wrath of God, God is at peace with us. Verse 5 again. Believer, Christian, God is at peace with you. The Apostle Paul says, having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, God is at peace with us. He's no longer striving against you. He's no longer at odds with you. He's no longer condemning you. It is He who justifies. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Why? Because your Savior, 2,000 years ago, willingly took upon Himself, the guilt of all your sins. Do you understand the magnitude? Do you understand the awesomeness of what Christ did for His people? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you understand how the greatness of what Christ did for you? When God the Father was ready to pour His wrath upon us, Jesus said, pour it on me instead. Spare my people. Pour it on me. He experienced infinite pain, suffering, and punishment for you and for me. And he did that because he wanted to redeem a people for himself because he loved us. The sermon, the, the upper room discourse, that large portion of red letters in the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 13, where our Lord washes the disciples' feet and then talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon them. That portion starts with this amazing statement. In John 13, verse 1, the apostle says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The end of life? but also to the end of love. There's this no corner of love that the love of Christ for His people doesn't go. And you say, but I don't, I, I, can you prove that to us, Pastor? Yes. He died on the cross. That's the ultimate proof of His love for His people. And He did that almost willingly. In verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his, its shears is silent, so He opened not 
his mouth. The Messiah did not resist any of what was done to him. He had the power to do so. He could. He told Peter, Peter, put that sword away. Don't cut the servant's ear. If I wanted to, couldn't I call 12 legion of, of soldiers, of angels to come and defend me? But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to most willingly go to the cross because if I don't, my people cannot be saved. He had the power to do so, but he didn't. In John 10, he says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. I take it up. I will do what my father wants me to do. And he chose not to resist any of the evil that was done against him because he knew that if he did, he would not be able to save you or to save me. So he says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, he calls you his friend. And he laid down his life for you. If you are here without Christ, run to Him. Run to Him now. Don't wait. Don't wait. You don't know what's next. You don't know what's going to happen to you in the next second. Run to Christ. Trust in Him. Be surrounded by His love. If you choose to do otherwise, there will be only the wrath of God left for you. Now someone might say, Well, he was God. He knew what was going to happen. And that's why he did it. It was easy for him. He knew about the resurrection. If this thought ever crossed your mind, you must look at the Gethsemane on that Thursday night, which our Savior takes his closest human friends, begs them to pray for him, And he comes before his father in anguish with with sweat, as it were, of blood. And begs with his father, let this cup pass from me. If you think it was easy for him to do that, think about what that cup is. What is the cup that he's begging the Father to pass away, to pass from him, to let it go from him, to take it away from him? This was the cup of the wrath of God that he was about to drink on behalf of all who would believe in him. This was the cup that contained all the sins of his people, your sin, my sin, to be forgiven, that was going to separate him from his Father, the eternal fellowship he had. And you think that was easy, easy for him? If you think that being God made this suffering more bearable, walk into the praetorium, the place where the Romans kept their guards and where Jesus was kept, and watch the Roman soldiers mock him and slap him and put a crown of thorns upon his head and whip him with a whip designed to remove layer after layer of flesh and skin, designed to kill somebody. And he did that for you. To the point that Isaiah 52 verse 14, I'm going to read from the ESV, is a little clearer. He says, A man who astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. That's your Savior that night that you might think it was easy for him to do. He was so beat up that people could even tell, is that a human? 
If you think that dying for you was easy, climb Calvary with Jesus. And listen to him, listen to him cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just purely quoting Psalms 22, claiming the rest of Psalm 22. These are the words of a suffering man who, are, who is betrayed by his people, who is forsaken by his father. And he's doing that willingly so that you, you, the people of God, don't have to be forsaken by your God. It was not easy. It was not convenient. But our Lord and Savior did it for us. So the Apostle Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Though the message of Isaiah 53 is succinctly summarized in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And not only did the Lord Jesus Christ suffer on our behalf, but He also was humiliated on our account. God the Son, equal in power and glory with the Father, being of the same essence, became like you and I, like you and me. Became human. In verse 2 it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness. comeliness. And when he would see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Not only he became just like a human, like you and I, like you and me, but an average human. The kind that you couldn't pick out of a lineup. No, no attractiveness to, his, to himself. As a human, he became flesh and dwelt among us, being humiliated by having to go through the miseries of this life. Dr. Alan McRae, an early professor in the Bible Presbyterian Church, in his commentary in the book of Isaiah, says, He was born a Galilean peasant, living and dying in a little country on the very fringe of civilization. Seemed like a frail plant growing a parched ground, altogether lacking majesty and beauty. He was despised. He was rejected by those of earthly importance. He was acquainted with pain and sickness. And this just just doesn't seem to be the picture of a conquering king. Yet, this is exactly what it is. And this king reigns over us today with all power, with all honor, And with all majesty. His throne was a a cross. Perhaps this is not how we would choose to do it. But that's how God chose to do it. And that was perfect. If you think that this message of the gospel is foolish. Be careful. Lest you be found to be the fool in the day of reckoning. Paul says exactly that in 1 Corinthians 1, when he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. 
and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The world thinks that a man dying on the cross of the sins of his people is foolish. Paul talks about the foolishness of the message preached. That's how the natural person is. If you're here without Christ, this is what you probably think. Why are you wasting time talking about a dead man? For one, he's not dead. The third gate came and he rose from the dead. He's alive, reigning over his church, and he's coming back. Two, God is not a fool. You are, but God is not a fool. Submit yourself to him. Bow your heart to him. Humble yourself before him, and he will exalt you. Our Lord was tried as a criminal and crucified among the wicked in verses 8 and 9. The creator, of the, just think of me, the creator of the universe was condemned to die the death of a criminal by the very man that were commissioned by God to uphold his law. The religious leader of the time. He was the established high priest who initiated the process to get the Lord of glory crucified. That's humiliating. But even as he hangs on the cross, thoroughly humiliated, we hear our gracious Savior promising to the repentant thief, today will be with me in paradise. And that's that's the promise he makes to everyone who comes to faith in him. They will be with him in paradise. And this suffering servant was God's perfect sin offering, verses 10 and 11. There is no other offer for sin. This is it. There is no need for another sin offering. Jesus is it. God is satisfied with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. It is finished. And he meant it when he said, as he's, he's breathing his last, and he says, it is finished. Not only is his life finished, but his work on your behalf is finished. And all that we do is trust that what he did is ours. And this suffering servant came back to life and was exalted by the Father. In verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And borrowing on this theme of verse 12, Paul writes that great song in Philippians chapter 2, in which he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's been exalted by His Father. So what do we do with this information? If you are in Christ, rejoice. It used to be the tradition in the United States, I don't know if it was in Europe, but in the United States it used to be that Good Friday service was a very somber event. Often there was no singing. Um, in the East Coast, there was a tradition that when the, the, the pastor was done, he would slam his Bible shut and leave the church and nobody talk and leave. And that all businesses would close between noon and three because those were the hours of darkness. 
on that Good Friday. We live on this, on this side of the resurrection. The crucifixion lead, leads to the resurrection. So if you are in Christ, rejoice. Rejoice for the price of your soul has been paid in full. There's nothing else that you must do. Cling to the cross of Jesus and make the center of your life. Let everything in your life flow from the cross, knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Live righteously, knowing that Christ has conquered sin for you. Live happily, knowing that God's face shines upon you because it frowned upon His Son. So rejoice if you believe in Jesus Christ. If you have not given yourself to Christ, do it. Do it now. Don't delay it. Don't leave it here today without trusting in Jesus Christ. Embrace Him for your salvation. He has promised that He will not turn away anyone who comes to Him. He will love you, He will redeem you, and He will preserve you forever with Him. But the day of salvation is today, is tonight. Come to Him. Come to Him, you who are burdened. Come to Him, you who are heavy laden. Take upon you His yoke, for His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who saves. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly gave himself to us, to his church. We thank you for his willingness to suffer. We thank you for his active obedience in his life. And we thank you, Father, that you brought him back to life, showing to us that his sacrifice was accepted by you. Again, we pray that your hand be upon all of us, that we all would trust in you. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.